All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started though. With uh, uh, we're on Philippians. We're in a new study, uh, and I have no idea how long this is going to be. Let's just assume <laughs> it's going to be a while. <laughs> I was sharing with a couple of you earlier that uh, you know I try to take all of the notes from various people I'm interested in, in studying their per- perspective, as well as mine. I hope. And uh, uh, for chapter one, I had over a hundred pages of information that uh, I need to distill down to uh, something that makes sense. So, But this morning, uh, we're going to start with some background around uh, the book of Philippians and around who the, the, the Philippians were and, um, and why Paul wrote this and how it all fits together. And then, and then maybe we'll, we'll get into the first couple of verses of... Uh, of Philippians as well. So why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then uh, and then we'll we'll dig into a little bit about about uh, Philippians. Father, thank thank you again for the opportunity to study your word, and thank you for uh, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the fact that you uh, love us and you care for us and you um, you guide and direct us. In the midst of everything, we thank you, Father, that you have forgiven us already for everything we have ever done and ever will do. We ask that you would help us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We ask that you would uh, help us to be faithful servants and to be uh, willing to uh, to do what's best to see your kingdom advanced in this world. We know that if we're willing to to, to do that, that we will be faithful and that we will be considered uh, uh, honored by you. So thank you again, Father, for the opportunity as we study Philippians. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So you remember the book of Acts. Remember we studied that a couple of, probably a couple of years ago. <laughs> His memory serves me. It's been a while. Uh, Paul is interested, he's in Asia Minor. He's in what's today uh, Turkey. And he wants to go to the northern part of Turkey, which would be up around the, uh, the Black Sea, and is, uh, is, permitted, is, pre- is prevented by God from going in, in a, a couple of different directions. And so one night he has this, this, um, uh, he has this vision, and it's a, a vision from um, the man of Macedonia saying, come on over here and help us. And so that's what he does. And so uh, during his second missionary journey, they go uh, over to, uh, to Macedonia, which would be the northern part of Greece. Now, Macedonia was known for uh, one thing in particular. If you remember, there was a guy that was really, really important to the makeup of the way the Middle East is even today. Alexander the Great, that's correct, Alexander. Now, his dad was a guy by the name of Philip, Philip II. Philip II, as many kings did, decided that he was going to start a city. Guess what he named the city? Philippi. Philippi, right, Philippi. So this is a city that was founded by the father of Alexander the Great. It was a small city for many years. Um, but it was a city that was um, uh, that had a lot of, of uh, it was 
in an area considered the gold area, this is an area that gold was mined in, uh, in that area of Macedonia. Now, I read someplace he actually stole it from Thrace and renamed it. Yes, and Thrace is, is one of the things you'll find as we're looking at this today. You'll find, and I'll just mention it, I don't think I have it in these notes that I've, I've compiled for you. But Thrace is, uh, uh, when they worship in Philippi, it is uh, made up of uh, one of the major areas of uh, religion and gods that they, they serve are Thracian gods. Like that term, Thracian? I think that's an accurate term. So, uh, Philippi is about 10 miles from the, from the sea. So it's inland just a bit. And uh, what makes it really important during this time frame is that during um, the end of the, of the era of B.C., before Common Era, or before Christ, uh, as those of us in theology would say versus those that are in anthropology and history today. They wouldn't want to say, hey, it's common era, before common era, and then common era um, versus A.D., which, would mean, which translates out of the Latin into the year of our Lord. Uh, so uh, in uh, 42 uh, B.C., there is a, a battle, and the battle is, is uh, as a result of the wars in, in Rome. So you have on one side, you have uh, the group that is, uh, that is loyal to Caesar who has died, who was killed by Brutus and others, Cassius. And on the other side, you've got those that are, that are staunch Republicans, uh, and that's Republicans in Rome, versus emperor, empire people. That's really good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and they lost. So... The Republicans of Rome were Brutus and Cassius. They were the ones that were involved in the, in the assassination of, of Caesar. And they were defeated in 42 B.C. Uh, by Octavian, Anthony, and Lepidus. Lepidus? Lepidus, I guess. Uh, and um, now Lepidus was a, pretty much a minor player as considered between Anthony and Octavian. But as a result of the war... Uh, Anthony took his army and, and, and let them go. Now remember, if you are a member of the Roman army and you reach retirement, often they, would not, they, they didn't want you to go back to Rome. They wanted you to settle in a colony in, in a particular area and make it more Rome, more, more Romish, if you will. So, um, or Italian, perhaps, would be a, another way of saying it. So the result of that is that one of the armies... Uh, is is there, and and uh, decides to uh, retire there, and then uh, again, if you remember your his, your history, um, you have Octavian who becomes Augustus. By the way, changes his name to Augustus when he becomes the most August, um, and he is fighting Anthony. Remember who Anthony was with at the time? Cleopatra, Cleopatra. right. Cleopatra got around. She was with Julius Caesar, and then she's with Anthony. She dies as a result of the of the war that Anthony is fighting for the control of the Roman Empire. He loses, and Octavius Octavian wins. And as a result of that, again another army happens, and another time the city comes 
um, with influx of Roman soldiers who have retired. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this particular city is that it is a city that is granted special status by, uh, by Rome. And the result of that is that they have uh, many of the same freedoms as though they were, they were in Rome itself. So taxes are much less. The laws are much more Roman versus Greek or anything else, uh, Macedonian or Thracian. And so they, uh, they, they rename the, the city ultimately. First they name it for Julius Caesar, and they call it the Colony of the Philippians. And then they make it, uh, and then Augustus, Octavian, when he decides to grant them even further special status, he names it the Colony of Augustus Julius uh, Philippians, or Philippus, Philippius. So that's kind of the, the story of this. And again, in uh, in Philippi, it was the church was founded roughly 50, BC, uh, 50 A.D. So this is about 80 years or so after that last war. <clears throat> and uh, and remember who who is uh, who is there? Do you remember who who the the Do you remember anything in particular about about Philippi? Paul's thrown in jail. And Paul's thrown in jail. Saying hymns in the prison. Saying hymns in the prison. There is a there is a an earthquake. Uh, the guard ends up becoming a, a follower of Christ as a result of the fact that no one flees the jail. Paul tells him not to kill himself. But you remember how the church started? There was a gal that sold purple. She was well-to-do. She had a lot of, apparently a lot of money. She, her name was Lydia. You remember why Paul did Now, Paul, Lydia is a, probably a close to, if not a fully converted uh, Gentile to, to, uh, Jewish, um, to the Jewish worship and Jewish religion, or she is very close to it if she's not fully there. And she becomes a follower of Christ as a result of meeting Philip, now, or, or not, excuse me, Philip, uh, as a result of meeting uh, Paul. Do you remember why did Paul get thrown in prison? Well, that was another city, but it, but it's similar. He set a slave girl free. He set a slave girl free. She was uh, demon possessed, and she kept going around and and uh, shouting and making noise and talking about well, she was who God a, is. A seer, a she was a seer, yes. And as a result of that, Paul casts out a demon. And of course, if you're the owner of this slave girl and you're making money on her prophecies. Business is not good, and so what are you going to do? You're going to go and complain, file a complaint. The, the, the sheriff is going to come and arrest Paul. They end up treating him inappropriately. Of course, he doesn't tell them he's a Roman citizen, but they don't ask. You know, so that that creates a whole struggle. So anyhow, that's what's that's the the background towards this church. Now, this church also has been incredibly, incredibly generous to Paul. Uh, they are one of the reasons that that he seems to write this letter is there are some small 
local tiffs going on, little infighting, but minor things that are going on. Uh, there's a couple of ladies that are causing problems, and they apparently, I don't know why, or we don't know all the particulars around them, but they're helping to stir up dissension in the church, and one of the reasons he writes is for that. And there's a couple of other minor things that he's writing about. It would appear that there's the possibility of some Gnostics uh, teaching that might be in there, but we're not 100% certain about that. But uh, the big reason that Paul writes to the Philippians is to thank them for their generosity. They've been supporting him. And that support's important. That support is what allows him to do the work that he's doing without having to necessarily work, uh, you know, at his trade as a, as a tent maker. So they've sent him a gift. There's another thing that happens, and that is we talk about this. Who is, or, or where is Paul when he wrote this? Roman prison. Well, there's, there, you know, as always, since there's no particular, inf- there's, there's little information in here, but not a lot. We know that he's a prisoner. We don't know where he's a prisoner at. Now, tradition says that it's Rome. And I, by the way, happen to believe that Rome is where he wrote this from. But this, this look is considered one of the, what they call the prison epistles or the prison letters. The prison letters uh, would be uh, um, Colossians, Ephesians, uh, possibly Philemon, and, uh, and perhaps this one as well. But it, it would appear that this one is written a little later than the other prison epistles. We're not sure exactly when, but we, we think our best guess is right around, uh, right around 60, 60 A.D., so this is about 10 years after the founding of the church. So they're still faithful in, in helping him and taking care of him. Now, by the way, he's ba- he goes back in the third missionary journey and visits Philippi again. <clears throat> so, so yeah. it would appear mm-hmm. since they, uh, the uh, Philippian congregation, so to speak, continue to uh, fund Paul yeah. in many ways that this was a, a group of uh, individuals or merchants within the city that were part of this church because they seemed to be uh, people of some means. It's, it, it's possible. That undoubtedly, there are some that are well off in this congregation. It would also be, uh, I think, safe to say there are a lot that aren't. You know, as in most congregations, there's a uh, especially when it's a single congregation for an entire city, there there's a lot of there's a lot of different economic levels and socioeconomic levels in the church, uh, and it would appear that some of them give out of out of their wants and some give out of their their uh, bounty. Yeah, so there you know, certainly Lydia, I'm, I'm assuming is a, a person who who sells purple. Uh, that particular uh, Merchant is a, a very well-to-do person uh, to be a, a seller of purple in that time frame uh, in the first century. So there are, uh, 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 as always, when you get uh, scholars together, um, you have multiple people coming up with multiple ideas of where did Paul write this letter from. Some say he wrote it in Rome. Most of us think that that's probably accurate. 
Some say that no, it couldn't have been Rome, and the reason for that is that Rome, the the this, the the um, amount of time, the amount of travel between Rome and Philippi in miles is approximately 800 miles. It's about um, it's uh, it's about 52 days to 39 days, depending upon how fast you can travel, plus some a couple of five, two to five days at sea. And it would appear that there's a possibility that there were as many as six one-way journeys, which seems to be kind of, wow, that's a long distance, 800 miles. Maybe Paul was closer to be able to have this, these people coming back and forth. So some have, have said, well, we think that it's Ephesus. The problem with Ephesus is there's no indication anywhere that, uh, one, that there are Praetorian guards in Ephesus. Praetorian guards, by the way, were guarding Paul. Praetorian guards were the uh, the elite of uh, of the armies of Rome. They were uh, uh, committed wholly and solely to the emperor and the emperor's safety. <clears throat> so they were a special guard. They were the only army that was allowed in Rome of all of the ar- Rome ar- Roman armies. The Praetorian guards. So it w- and we know that in Acts that the Praetorian guards were guarding. Paul at the end of the, of, of the book of Acts. So uh, it's one of the reasons why we think that. Now there's a pot, so Ephesus seems like a really a long stretch. There's another group that say, oh no, it was Corinth, which wouldn't be that far away. It's further down on the co- uh, uh, in, in, in Greece. The problem again with Corinth is there's no indication of Paul ever being in prison in Corinth. It's just like there's no, there's no evidence of being in prison in, in Ephesus. So that gives us one other option. And that would be Caesarea. Caesarea, because that's where Paul was stuck for several years. Remember before he finally says, hey, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to plead my case before the Roman emperor. So it's possible that he was in, in Caesarea. The problem with Caesarea is, again, it would depend upon whether or not there are Praetorian guards in Caesarea. Some say... Uh, some scholars and some historians say, well, the Praetorian guards guarded uh, the governor's mansion. They were the, the they were kind of like the you know how today we have uh, at all of our embassies we have uh, uh, we have Marines that guard them, right? One of my friends years ago, uh, who since has passed away, but he and I graduated together. He was uh, the head of all of the uh, marine guards in the Middle East at all the embassies. Yeah, all throughout the Mediterranean. And so, uh, uh, so you know, maybe, maybe that's the case. But the problem, again, with Caesarea is that it's 1,200 miles. So it's even further to get to Philippi. So it would have seemed that the most logical explanation is that Paul did indeed uh, write this from Rome. Again, we're not told that specifically in this book, but the hints are with the the Praetorian guards guarding him. We think that that's probably where it was, most likely. Now, can we argue over it? Sure. And again, if you have three scholars that get together to argue, you'll probably have four opinions. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's just the way we are, is when we argue, we, you know, well, you know, uh, it could be this, it could be something else. So, 
again, depending upon when, uh, where Paul is depends upon when the dates of this are written. But we think the most likely is somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. Paul is writing it during his first Roman imprisonment. Now, again, there, for those of us who have studied Paul a little bit, we know that there is a possibility of him having had a second imprisonment. It would appear that he was let go of the first imprisonment only to be uh, recaptured uh, or, or rearrested and taken before the emperor, and this time not put in a house with guards guarding him, but this time put into a, a prison, an actual prison jail. And if uh, you're ever in Rome and, and you have the time, uh, our four-hour <laughs> flyby, we didn't get to the Roman the Ro- <laughs> the Roman uh, prison, but there's a Roman prison that we believe that Paul and Peter were both kept in, and it's uh, it's a hole in the ground, really, literally. So uh, and the, that movie, Paul, mm-hmm. the, they portrayed it. The access to his cell was literally a hole in the floor. They pulled this grate up, and there he, he was, was down huh? there, no windows, no nothing, you know. Which is it is kind of what it looks like today. If you if you uh, go and look at this this prison, it, it is it is a hole in the ground that he that they think he was in there. So all right, so we've got uh, this this this. We're going to talk a little bit about. Okay, let's just see. Any uh, any thoughts on who he's referring to and these preachers? He says are preaching the news of Christ with impure okay. motives or self serving yeah. motives. We're going to get to that and, and discuss it. There are two. There are two areas where people seem to be attacking Paul in chapter one. When we actually dig into a little deeper, we're going to find out that there's a group of men uh, or people, perhaps women. We don't know. We're not told um, that are preaching, and they believe that their preaching will be such that it will cause pain, hardship, and sorrow to Paul. Paul is saying he's thankful that they're preaching because the word of God is going forth. Now, what we think are, these are probably people who uh, have minor differences with him. It could be things like, it could be major, like whether or not they should become uh, Jews uh, and follow the Jewish law. In chapter 3, that's definitely the case. In this particular case, it seems to be not quite as severe. The, the, he seems to be just thankful that they're preaching the gospel, even if there are minor points they disagree on. Think of it like different denominations. He, sp- he says that they preach with selfish ambition. Yes. Like they're just trying to advance their own position. They're trying to advance their own position. They're perhaps trying to make money. Uh, they're enjoying the fact that as they preach, they think that he is in trouble. It gets further in trouble because he's the he's. They think, at least from a from a, a Gentile perspective, he's the leader of the church in many ways. So if you can do anything to to heap coals of fire on his head, hallelujah! How great is that? You know, they're also doing it for it would appear for their own ambitions. So they're perhaps they're trying to get ahead. You know, it, we've talked about this in the past about the fact that there are there are some people that go into the ministry with the idea of making money. Um, and some of them do. Some of them make a lot of money. Uh, they're they're very wealthy. Joel um, there are there are others. There are others who 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 seem to hit uh, that make money without even trying to. I would and I would 
suggest that uh, Rick Warren would be one of those guys that wrote a book that was just so amazingly powerful that it just blew up uh, the, the Christian church with the, the purpose-driven life and all that's come from that. Now, um, there are those that, again, as I said, there are those that, that never make any money, and, and there are those that God calls to you know, minister in small areas uh, of his kingdom. And uh, sometimes I think that they're the unsung heroes. They're the ones that are they're probably going to get a whole lot more rewards than some of the guys that you know, have these huge churches. It's not that's not a dig against people that have huge churches, by the way. Well this guy says sowing a thousand dollar seed and you'll be blessed, you know. Yeah. What's that guy's name? I don't know. Well there's a bunch of them that, that do He's that. Always saying, you know, yeah, well and I and I'm gonna be collecting those thousand dollars as you leave today <laughs> <laughs> just because I want to bless you and as you bless me. Um that's right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Well, who's right. the one that wanted a new airplane? And he put out the word to his followers to make special contributions because he needed a, number, a new private jet. There were a number of them. There were a number. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah, well, you never know. It, it, what we have is there are, there are, there are people in churches that are want to be generous and want to give, and there are, there are, there are men and women that have a lot of funds at their disposal. Sometimes God gifts people with the ability to make money, um, and and it seems like they have almost the mightiest touch. And so, if they choose to to bless the church, that's great. The biggest problem you have is that often people who have a lot of money want to control what the pastor does, and that creates a bit of a problem. Um, I remember there was a church here in the Detroit area. There are several in the Detroit area that I know for a fact that uh, one in particular I'm thinking of, the pastor, uh, said all they do is prop me up on Sunday and let me preach. They won't let me actually pastor. you know. Uh, and so he, he stayed there for a, a number of years, ended up, uh, ended up going on to, uh, to, pa- uh, to actually uh, head up two different uh, universities in the uh, uh, in the Christian world, and um, is doing a great job at, at that. But you know, his problem was that one of the churches he pastored, they wouldn't let him actually pastor. You know, they told him what he could or couldn't do, and they told him what he could or couldn't say from the pulpit. That that creates an issue. You know, that that's a group of people or a family, and that happens a lot. Of, not just in big churches, but sometimes small churches. Small churches have a single family that perhaps helped start the church or fund it or, or are the, the big givers in the church. You know, I, had, I ran into that. I told you this previously in, an, uh, in a, this story that we had a, a, a family that moved away. They moved uh, uh, two states away from where we were, and our, our people just came unglued over the, the couple of the people in the church came unglued because they knew that, they were big givers in the church. Anytime the church needed something, whatever it was, that was over and above the budget, these people would fund it. It was great, you know. And they, they thought it was wonderful. And they kept saying, you know, what are we ever going to do? What are we going to do when, when so-and-so isn't here anymore? And I said, well, you know, maybe we'd, we'll do what we do. What we'll, let's try what it says in our money. I go, what? I said, how about just trusting in God? Let, let's let's put out the plea to our people that God, you, that that we need funds, and that that 
you know, to ask them, we'll, I'll, I'll teach on giving, and ask them to just ask God what to give and then, and then go from there. You know, that year we took in more money than we did in any of the years I was there. <laughs> kind of strange how that worked out. It was, and it was a God thing. It wasn't me. I didn't have anything to do with it. Other than just mention, ask God what he wants you to do. If he tells you to give more, give more. If he tells you to give less, well, as much as I'm going to hate to say this, it's going to be on tape, don't give less, you know. Do, do what God tells you to do. I thought it was interesting, though, that these type of self-serving preachers yeah. have existed right from the get-go. Oh, yeah. This is not a 20th century phenomenon or just no, today. No, this is the no, bizarre right thing. Right is that from the uh, first decades. You know, remember, remember the book of Acts? There was uh, uh, Peter and uh, I'm trying to think. It was, I think it was John were in uh, Samaria, and there was a great movement of the Spirit. In fact, people were getting saved but hadn't received the Holy Spirit at that point in time. They came down from Jerusalem. They spoke there. They laid hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit and signs and wonders followed. Do you remember what happened? There was Simon the sorcerer says, hey, you know what? I'd like, I'd like some of that. What would it cost... Can I buy that? That's a great trick, you know. Or uh, what, how does that work? You know, could could I get some of that? And we, from that, there's a term for people that do that. You remember what the term is? Simony. Hmm. When people take money for or attempt to, to take money for more money than they should for for buy God's gifts. You know, we call it simony. When people take more than they should, it's called simony. Uh, and uh, so it's a, it's a strange thing that happens, but it's happened since the very beginning of time. Why? Because people are greedy. Some people just are greedy. Now, not everyone is. Not everyone does that. We know that. But it, it sure does kind of sour in your mouth, doesn't it, when it happens? It kind of makes you wonder, maybe I should hold my pocketbook. Let me tell you something. <clears throat> I'm off the subject, but that's okay. Let's talk about giving for just a second. Your responsibility as believers is to, I believe, to give God a gift. Now, my thinking and your thinking might be different. I believe that a tithe goes to the Lord. I believe that, that it probably the majority of that ought to go to your local church, if not all of it. And then anything you give over and above that, if you want to give a, an offering... Bless your heart. Give it to whoever God lays on your heart. Some of you do it differently. That's fine. That's how you answer between you and God. There is no special formula that says in the Scripture, this is what you must do. We know that from the study of the Old Testament that the Hebrew people uh, gave like two and a third tithes. They gave two, two tenths every year. Plus they gave every third year, they gave three tenths. So, you know, uh, a tithe is... A nice, it's a nice figure to look for and to, to, to go for. But here's the deal. You need to give your money so that it can be used by God to advance his kingdom. Somewhere, somehow, someplace. How you do that is between you and the Lord. But here's what you don't do. You don't go, you know what? I don't like what they're doing here, so I'm going to continue to come, but I'm going to withhold my tithe. I'm going to withhold my offerings. Don't do that. That's wrong. If you can't support the church spiritually, if you can't for, support it financially, don't support it spiritually. Just leave and find another place where you can go and give your money. 
<clears throat> because I think it's important that you do that. I think it's important that you that. And here's the here's the deal. <clears throat> you have to have faith that the people that are leading your church are committed to follow God and committed to to do what God calls them to do, even if it means that they uh, are doing something you don't agree with. It's but they don't answer to you necessarily. They answer who who, who do they answer to? God. I'm going to tell you something. I'd rather answer to you morons any day than I'd rather <laughs> answer to God. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you talking to me? I'm talking to you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You knuckleheads. How's that? Is that better? All right. I, better? Better. Knuckle, <laughs> I, think if, I think that if you give, you give, and you say, you know what? I've done what God... It's like when you give... If, if God tells you to give to a homeless person, are you responsible for how they use the money? Absolutely. No. It's, you've done what God told you to do. Give them some money. Now, you might choose to do it in a way that kind of forces them to, you know, like... I used to carry around McDonald's certificates and hand those out, which meant that if I handed it out to a homeless person, I knew they weren't going to buy liquor. They were going to buy liquor. They they could only go over to, to McDonald's and get food, right? So there there are ways of doing things that might help guide them if you're afraid of that. Um, and in, in some churches, they allow you to to designate funds. I was in one church that wouldn't let let us designate funds. That was always fun. Because, you know, the people would say, I'd like to give to this particular project. I say, yeah, you can't. Because the church has a policy. We don't allow designation of funds unless the church specifically is the one that designates it. But here's what you can do. Here's a list of things we need to, that we'd like to have in our ministry. And if you'd like to buy that item and donate it, <clears throat> that, that's great. That's Kenley didn't used to do that with the year-end request. You used to be able to, they had all these you know, projects they're always doing, and mm-hmm. you could specify your year-end gift, go to these, or all of them if you wanted to. But and again, ch- well churches, yeah, everybody changes. You know, there's no, there, nobody stays the same, no church stays the same. If it does, all living organisms, doctor, what happens if a living organism isn't growing? It's decaying. It's dying. Yeah. Yeah. So the result is, if you're not moving forward as a church, you're dying. You can't stay stagnant. It's, it's an impossibility. Yeah, Bob. Danny Cox was on the stage. Yeah. He said, you're either going up or you're going down. That's pretty much true. And that's why I remember him saying that. Yeah, that's a good... going up. Going up or going, going down. down. There you go. All right. So, let's see, I think we've covered most of the things I want to cover, except I want to talk just a little bit about the canonicity of this book. Is this book part of the canon? And do we have any evidence that it's part of the canon? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, we do. (laughs) Isn't that great? Um, It was, uh, there are a number of people that that acknowledge this. Uh, Clement of Rome in, uh, in the first century is a, a, a teacher, a, a preacher uh, in Rome that, that acknowledges that Philippians is that. 
uh, Ignatius, who is, uh, uh, was an early um, apostolic father, was trained, I believe, by John, and, and as a result of that was a great uh, preacher himself. It was early in the second century that he uh, acknowledges this. Polycarp, who was, uh, uh, was a pastor in the, the, uh, in the area of Turkey, uh, was eventually uh, martyred for Christ. He acknowledged early on in the second century, which would be, again, in the hundreds. Remember, first century is, is not hundreds, it's zeros, you know. And so uh, by the second century, uh, Polycarp, uh, does this as well. Uh, additionally, there are a number of fragments uh, of lists of, of books. Um, uh, the Mertorian uh, fragment, uh, we believe, dates back to 170 A.D., which would be the second century. Some say it's as early as 135, 140 A.D. Um, um, Marcion, who was actually a heretic, but he created a list uh, he didn't have all of the books, but he had many of the books in there. He uh, he kept uh, Philippians in some of the uh, Paul's canon. He didn't accept. By the way, he was uh, he, he thought that um, um, he believed that the God of the Jewish God of creation was not the ultimate God. That there was another God above him, and uh, it was very Gnostic in his thought process. And he believed that Jesus was a lesser, a lesser God than God the Father and God Jehovah, the Creator of, of the world. So, uh, yeah, he was uh, he he uh, was a problem. Then you have second and third, early third century. You got Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Clement of Alexandria are all there. Another one that's interesting in the fourth century is uh, Athanasius, who is. Um, one of the reasons that we have today, we have the canon of Scripture and we have the, the, the fact that God the Son is the same as God the, the Father. He was one of the ones that helped in the Nicene Council. He was the one that, that, that carried that banner forward. He's also the one who listed all of the original 27, 27 books in the New Testament. He, he, he acknowledged all of them in the 4th century. Now it took another two centuries before the church finally agreed that all of them were in there. But he, uh, uh, some of the church, most of the church did real early on, but there are a few. Um, Hebrews was one. Um, uh, James was another one that was hard-pressed. Uh, Jude, I believe, was another one that took a while for folks to agree that it was a part of the canon. And we can I, we talked about this one time. It's been a long time since we did, but anyhow, I don't want to get too much further. We got with the last little bit we've got. I'd like to take a look at just the first couple of verses of of Philippians, and just start to unpack this a little bit because there's some things here that we need to look at. As an example, in the first one it says, "Paul and Timothy, servants of, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus." at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stop right there. All right, so this is one of the, an unusual book because although Timothy is often with Paul and often mentioned 
in some of Paul's epistles, this is one of the few times, and perhaps I think the only time, that he's actually listed as one of the guys that, that signs at the beginning of the book and says, hey, it's, it's Paul and Timothy. Um, now, remember, what happens when you get a letter today? When you open up the letter, what do you see? You see a salutation. Who it's to? No, Siri, I don't need you to look for something. Okay. Um, you get a salutation. In, in the, and then you get a letter like, you know, it says, Dear so-and-so. Dear that, resident. Dear resident. Yeah, dear resident. Yeah. <laughs> dear resident. Yeah. Dear occupant, which is another one my favorite. Dear special deal for you. <laughs> so, to make concern, sure, yeah. So, uh, you have this, this greeting. Now, in, in ancient times, when you got a letter, the first thing is they told you who it was from. What do you have to do when you get a letter? You look at the return address, and if you're lucky, you figure out who it's from. If, if there's no return address on it, what's the first thing you do? You open it up, and you probably look at the bottom, because that's where the signature is, right? You go, oh, it's, it's Joe. Yeah, I wondered when Joe was going to send me a note. Yeah. So in ancient times, you put that at the very front. And so almost all of Paul's books start off with, you know, Paul so-and-so. And uh, and Timothy, such and such, and 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 then then they are they they give themselves titles. Their titles are servant of Christ Jesus. This is not house servant. This is literally slave. See about and uh, and and the result is that they're talking about the fact that they are in in Greek understanding and in Roman understanding a slave. Could still be a fairly important person, but they are still a slave. And in some of the terms that Paul uses for slave, uh, means an under rower. It's the bottom of the tier of the guys that are rowing on the gallery, on the galleys. So uh, I mean, it's it's a pretty low person that, that Paul often refers to when he says servant or or slave of Jesus Christ. Now in uh, in Hebrew thought process. Uh, the term slave could mean bad. It also could be an honorary title. Uh, Moses is considered a servant of the Most High, uh, a servant of Jehovah. And as such, the term servant or slave to your God it becomes a, a title of honor in many uh, persons' thinkings uh, that are Jewish, at least from that, from that time frame. So we have this, they announce who they are, they announce what they are, which is, at least from a Greek perspective, and uh, would be a very much a, uh, a, a place of humility. And then they say, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now, does that mean that every one of those was blessed by somebody and made a, a, a saint and they, we have a special day for them? My translation is to God's holy people in Philippi, rather than the term saint. Saint means certainly just somebody who's set apart, or holy. And holy is, by the way, one of the definitions of holy is set apart. <laughs> so it has this idea of someone who, is, who has made a commitment to Christ and is set apart. And they're, taught, they're, they're, they're there in Philippi. Then he goes together with the overseers and the deacons. 
Okay, we're going to spend a little time on this too because we've got to look at some of the perspectives here. Uh, what does it mean? Well, we know that deacon comes to the term servant. Dikanos is the Greek. And it means someone who serves. And, uh, and it was somebody in the church who serves. Uh, overseer. Anybody else got another translation for overseer there? Church leader. Okay. That's, that's not a, a, it's not really a good translation, but that's okay. I know who did, who did the translation for that. Mine says overseer is also a it, it, it means bishop is another term for it. Not elder. They didn't use elder. Huh? Yeah. Now, let's talk about that. Is there a difference between, again, 21st century different than 1st century, right? 1st century church is just starting out. There are a lot of things that are not in place. We create as we go, as organizations go, what happens? All organizations need to be organized. And organization means that there are often hierarchies. And so we create a list of things that are important and we have to title them something or other. So we give them titles like elder, overseer, presbyter, bishop, apostle, pastor, deacon, brother, something, priest. So what does it mean in the Old Testament? In, in the New Testament, the first century, what's it mean? What's, it, what's the difference? I think there's a, I'm going to tell you and then I'm going to try to show you, okay? If you are Jewish, you are used to the concept of an elder, somebody who, who is the, the head of the clan, the head of the tribe, the one who oversees things, and you're used to answering to elders. It's kind of the way of your life. And so to use a term elder is something that's very familiar if you're Jewish. But if you're Greek or Gentile, it doesn't sound right to your ears. It sounds foreign. It's a little uncomfortable, and you're not really sure exactly what it means. So Paul came up with another term, overseer, which is what? Like a boss, a bishop. Bishop, overseer, the same thing, same term. So can you use them interchangeably? Because today there rarely are they in many of our churches today. Well, let's go over and take a look at the book of Acts. And all i got to do is find the right chapter in the book of Acts now. I want to say it's 16, maybe, maybe 20. I don't know. i got to find it again. I had, my, I had it originally I had it in my notes, and of course now I don't have it in my notes. Here we go. Um, no, it'll be, okay, it's in Acts 20. In verse 17 and following, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Paul calls together all of the leaders of, of the churches, the church in Ephesus. And he calls in verse 17, he says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for all the elders of the church. So from this point on, he's talking to the elders of the church. Right? Okay, now, let's go over to verse 28. Again, he's talking to the elders of the church. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has given you overseers. 
So he calls the elders overseers. And be shepherds of the church. What's the term shepherd? It can also be translated pastor. Pastor. So we have elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd all as meaning the same thing, at least in chapter 20 of Acts. Now, again, as the church goes, you know, every church does that which is right in their own eyes. They answer before God for what they do. We have some churches. You know, I, I was raised in a church. You had a singular elder, and then you had who was the pastor, and then you had the deacons who answered to him. And uh, if you had staff, the staff were never considered pastors. <laughs> they were considered staff. <laughs> yeah. And so they, there was a, a term that wasn't even scriptural. It was, I don't know what what they were. They were, you know. In the, in the grand scheme of things, they weren't. Then there were other churches I was at that every pastor was, every, every person on, at a certain level was considered on the pastoral staff was considered a pastor. So they were all elders. Now you had some, again, you have the, the first among equals. So you often have a, a senior or a lead pastor. And then you had, you had deacons. Um, sometimes they were called boards. And um, usually... The way I would describe a deacon is somebody who's doing a job that's helping the, the pastor can do things that allows the pastor to do more spiritual work and the deacon to do whatever is necessary. In some cases, it might be more trustee-type stuff. In other cases, it might be taking care of the, um, of the widows and the elders uh, and, the, and, the, uh, and the, the affirmed. It might be taking care of elderly people and widows or orphans. Uh, it's whatever the individual church chooses. I've been in other churches that had a hierarchy where uh, you have uh, 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 you have elders who oversee or presbyters that oversee everything that happens in the church, and they're made up of both lay people and sometimes non-lay people or, or ordained uh, ministers. And then underneath that, you have pastors in individual churches that, that answer to boards. There's all sorts of different ways of doing it. Not one way is necessarily right and another way wrong. I've learned over the course of time, there are going to be things that all of us are comfortable with and some of us are uncomfortable with. Uh, I was raised a particular way, and I don't necessarily agree with it now. Um, I think that there ought to be a, a plurality of elders, whether they're paid or unpaid. As the case may be, but that's just my personal opinion, and you know what? How much my personal opinion is worth at Panera? <laughs> well, even that. Essentially, though, they, they should. <laughs> they got less than that. <laughs> they they should be oh yeah, but yeah. Many times, depending on the church. Oh, they're at war with each other. They, the boards. Oh yeah. They, they well, the pastors and the, and the and the. Oh yeah, yeah. I I've had uh, yeah I've had discussions with. Some of my boards in times past that were, you know, kind of um, stormy, you know. Uh, they wanted certain things done in certain ways, and I thought that what they were doing was 18th or 19th century type of doing things, but, you know, it's what they wanted. Sometimes you agreed with them, sometimes you didn't. I've learned now that you can negotiate a lot better than I used to. I'm reading a book right now by the... Uh, it was at the last global leadership conference I was at, and the, the guy that wrote it is a guy named Chris Voss, 
and he is he was the lead uh, international uh, hostage negotiator for the FBI for about 20 years, and he's written a book about negotiation. It's really fascinating uh, how and he says you can apply it to business, you can apply it to your just your general life, and that. And uh, he, he tells stories about him buying a car and negotiating with a, a car salesman, if you can imagine. And, and, you know, he just, he had that thing down to, to rock bottom by the time he was done. It was, it was fascinating to see how he, he, you know, how he played the, the game with, with a car salesman. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting book. I can't, remember the, uh, I can't remember the name of it. But, you know, if you look for Chris Voss, he's the author. Uh, he's good. It's an interesting book. I've really enjoyed it so far. So about maybe a third of the way through. Anyhow, let's go on with uh, just a little bit more here. <clears throat> so I've shown you what I think uh, elders and deacons and overseers and pastors, etc. Again, your church and how we do it at our church is up to the leadership of our church. And they, they're the ones that answer to God as to what they're, if they've done right or wrong. And, and there are many ways of doing it, and a lot of them are okay. It's, you know, there's not one way, this is the way it has to be done. And if it's not done that way, you know, the Church of England, which is Episcopal here, or Anglican, Anglican are those that, are, that have broken off of the Episcopal arm of the Anglican Church, uh, they at least uh, are supposed to answer to the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is the spiritual head of all of the Anglican churches. Now, there are archbishops in other parts of the world, bishops in other parts of the world, that oversee their flock. There's a, one of the bishops of uh, Nigeria. There's a bishop of uh, Bolivia that is a, a Wheaton graduate. If For those of you who are interested, Wheaton is where uh, Steve Andrews uh, attended. Um, just Billy, Graham. Billy Graham, yes, thank you. So uh, anyhow, it's interesting that uh, how that works. But anyhow, they control uh, and oversee their church and the churches underneath them in those areas. And so that's a hierarchy, if you will. All right, so uh, notice he says here, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, normally, a normal letter would start off with an opening that is a pattern, the name from so-and-so to so-and-so, and then you would say greetings is the way you would normally do it. In fact, if you look at uh, Acts uh, 15, uh, in Acts 15, the uh, let's just take a quick peek there. Acts 15, uh, the church of, of uh, Jerusalem sends a letter to all of the churches um, after they have the Jerusalem Council. Right? Remember that? Remember the Jerusalem Council? Some of you might remember it. There's another life yet. Look what it says here. The apostles and elders, your brothers, this is the letter. This is the letter. We're in verse 23. The, apostle, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. It, greetings. Greetings. That's the way you write a letter back in those days. Okay? Paul takes this and goes real close, but instead of saying greetings, he says grace 
and peace. It's interesting he does this because this is important. <coughs> and all I got to do is get to my notes so I can remember what it, why it's important. Here we go. Uh, because it, he wants us to, to understand that there is more than just a simple salutation here. He, in fact, the word uh, greetings is uh, anglicized Greek. It is C-H-A-R-E-I-N versus grace, which is C-H-A-R-I-S. It's a play on words. But he does it on purpose, I believe, because there's significance there. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians 8, 9. This grace in which the believers now stand is because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ did on the cross when God has atoned for their sins and brought the hostility that that sin engendered between God and us, has wiped it out so that we can now have grace and a standing before him. And then he offers to us the word peace, which is the idea of reconciliation, which is the idea of everything is good. I want you to have the best of whatever. It's it's it peace in Jewish thinking. Again, is the word what's the word? Shalom. Shalom, which means peace and God bless you and God take care of you and everything about it. There is a great. It's not just the the end of hostility. It is a gracious living that allows you to enjoy all that life that God wants you to enjoy in life. Right. It's grace, Yeah. 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 And that's what God that's what Paul is saying to them as he starts this out. And now we've come to the conclusion of our first two verses of Philippians. We only have <laughs> I must say something though. Yes, sir. He, he must he must have been breaking the rules all the time because in Romans one seven he says exactly the same oh, yeah. words. He does. He says this a lot. Yep. He says this a lot. He does it on purpose. You have to have grace before you have peace. Yes. 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 I just I flip back to <clears throat> Hebrews for the heck of it. There's no greeting, no salutations, no nothing. It starts like a Old Testament book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Long ago, God spoke many times. And mm-hmm. that's weird. The author doesn't identify some, himself. Some people or, uh, say that it was an actual <laughs> sermon that was that was made in, that, that became canonized. Others are, <clears throat> don't know. Maybe. You know. <clears throat> yeah. Yes. I noticed that the other thing, the last comment is that that means to me more like. Everybody in that group should have a pastor's heart. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. Between that bosses you around versus somebody who's caring for your soul, which is what a pastor should do. Yeah. So we all need that. We're in the end of the day, we need to keep that as a focus on what we need. We don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. All right. Let's let's close, shall we? Father, thanks for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Thank you for uh, this new study we're going to be uh, involved with. We just pray that you would open our eyes to what you have for us. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough that you'll care for us and you'll give us your word 
that helps us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Again, we ask your guidance and direction. Keep us safe as we travel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, my goodness.